Welcome everyone to yet another episode of When Movies Were Good down here in Melbourne, Australia with uh, Rachel and my special guest star, my weekly guest star, my only guest star, Matt. All the better to podcast with you, my dear. <laughs> yeah, so here we are again and we're doing our Marilyn Monroe double and of course you can't do a half an hour podcast and try to think that you could do Marilyn Monroe uh, justice, but as we always say, we're just two friends discussing films. We pick out sort of a theme or a person that, that connect the films, and that's how we figure out the films that we're going to do. So Marilyn is the link in both of the films that we're doing today. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, 1953, and The 7-Year Itch, 1955. And yeah, they were both vehicles for her in her very um, famous, amazing... Um, still known to this day, career that was tragically cut short. Um, what are your thoughts about Marilyn Monroe, Matt? Do you have anything off the top of your head that you... Well, it's tragically sad that for many uh, new generations of moviegoers, long before they are exposed to Marilyn's films, they are more exposed to the one, one of these tragic tales of falling into drug abuse and having an early death and being this victim of Hollywood. And then, that's uh, completely at odds because, uh, yes, uh, she obviously had these personal troubles, but when you look at her films, uh, like you sort of half expect from her reputation to be the beginning of one of these um, uh, 60s tragedies uh, with lots of drugs, like a bit like, um, oh, what was her name? She was uh, like Andy Warhol's movie protege. Um, Jane Mansfield, or uh, no, no, no um, uh, uh, but um, yeah, like Marilyn Monroe's uh, films are almost uh, uh, like Doris Day level by modern standards. Mm. Uh, hardly the most taboo uh, stuff, and so uh, yeah, like obviously uh, that doesn't mean that uh, because you have wholesome or non-wholesome or girl next door type roles, how that that if that that doesn't necessarily impact your personal life, but it's quite unfair that he, she's known for this sad uh, personal life before her movies. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, she's definitely, she's such a pop icon, but I think a lot of people are fascinated with Marilyn because behind this pin-up image is this very deeply troubled woman. And not to mention that, but the circumstances surrounding, surrounding her death have always been the stuff of conspiracy theories because she was involved with a president and his brother at the time. And a lot of people believe that there could be something to do with the two of them. So even in death, she was there was always like a question mark hanging over. I mean, they ruled it like an accidental death and, or some people believe she purposely took the mix of barbiturates that she did that caused her death. But then other people have always believed that she was involved with people too high up. And I don't know. Personally, I think the most uh, intimately she was involved with any uh, people of power was in an intimate sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I even um, was watching a documentary once that um, Jackie Kennedy you know, would answer the phone and, and say, is that you, Marilyn, there? So she was aware of their involvement, but then she got involved with his brother, Bobby, as well. So Kennedy uh, got around. Though. Yeah, that's true enough. So just to recap a little bit about Marilyn, of course, that was her stage name. Her name, was, she was born uh, Norma Jean Baker uh, or Norma Jean Mortensen. 
because um, she grew up in the foster care system in Los Angeles, California in 1926 and sadly died August the 4th, 1962 at aged only 36. So uh, you can actually visit Marilyn's grave because it's in that very famous Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery and she's in one of the sort of the wall caskets there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a pilgrimage a lot of people make. Marilyn was married uh, four times, uh, most famously to, oh no, sorry, three times, uh, most famously to Joe DiMaggio, the baseball player, and Arthur Miller, the very famous playwright. Um, sort of an odd couple they would have been, but funnily yeah, enough. Yeah, kind of chalk and cheese, that would be like uh, Neil Gaiman marrying uh, <laughs> Kate Blanchett. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so she got married to her first husband, James, or Jim, when she was 16, and she was working in a factory uh, in World War II. And then, of course, like some of these things happen for some of these people, she, um, she met a photographer, and the, the rest is history. Basically, she started sort of modeling, pin-up modeling, and then went to 20th Century Fox and Columbia Pictures, and then started getting involved in roles. And then by the early 50s, she was sort of one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. And that's from the period of where these two these two movies are. So she did, Matt and I were reading before, that she actually did try and start a production company and then studied, um, you know, method acting with Lee Strasberg at his famous Actors Centre. So I was watching a documentary once many years ago that she really struggled there because she did suffer from mood disorders and other sorts of things. So I think it was just, she just had a hard life. A lot of that stuff wasn't diagnosed properly. And then. I think studying method acting at that time would have affected her condition even uh, more deeply because, and it uh, kind of got on the bad side with a lot of actors at the time like James, James Dean and that generation because method acting was originally developed in Russia in the early 1900s and as it moved further to the United States it became more and more diluted and evolved into a sort of pseudo-pop psychology often managed by uh, a lot of uh, half actors, half uh, sham psychiatrists which um, uh, tried to engage in these uh, mental depths of uh, different actors and quite often got them into bad psychological situations that they weren't necessarily uh, uh, qualified or prepared to uh, get them out of again. Yeah, I remember we, we were at high school doing high school drama and this new drama teacher rocked up and he wanted us to study the... Is it Stanislavski? Is Stanislavski? Is that the Russian guy? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, hello, we're 16. I don't think we really need to be studying that for high school drama class. All that what it began with was uh, an attempt to sort of synthesize what made a very good acting performance, mm -hmm. and uh, like I've done a couple of short courses where uh, done by someone who did study uh, in Russia the original um, uh, method, mm. and it is interesting, but it's it's much more practical uh, when you get to the sort of the pure faith. It's much less of this uh, sort of almost. So, vanity, self-indulgence nonsense that you often see in actors where you get to some extremes like uh, Heath Ledger taking on drug abuse because uh, of a role, etc. Yeah, I, I, I'm I mean, not a huge rest, fan Rest in peace, but um, yeah. method acting isn't about 
uh, isn't it about turning yourself inside out 24-7? Yeah, I know. And you hear of other people not speaking to people on the set. I think Christian Bale's a bit like that and stuff. I can understand it when you're on the set and you're doing the scene and everything, but when you're walking around like that and you're off the set, I mean, you can sort of... You know, separate yourself a little bit if you feel it'll help your performance. But yeah, I think fine, you need to be in the zone to an extent during it, but uh, you have to be uh, realistic. It's... Yeah, definitely. So I don't think that was probably the best fit for poor Marilyn, but, you know, good on her for giving it a go. And I think starting your own production company at that time was a fairly modern thing to do. I mean, we're used to actors taking a much more heavy hand in the executive matters, but yeah, and, that was the new age. And remember Olivia de Havilland's lawsuit when she wanted to get out of her contract and yeah. everything. So it, was, so it was good. Like, I don't think she had that on-screen persona of the dumb blonde, and um, as we were reading before, her on-screen persona was definitely developed with the male gaze in mind. But she was, she was so much more than that. But look, every single actor, to one degree or another, unless you're some great unknown character actor, is stereotyped in one way, shape or form. And sometimes it's a bit unusual when you, uh, in retrospect, uh, see how different uh, actors are um, objectified. Like, I um, read an article which uh, I thought was kind of offensive to a lot of women of um, that generation who idolised Audrey Hepburn, and they were suddenly told in retrospect that that was a product for the male gaze. And I'm thinking, don't, don't get me wrong, Audrey Hepburn was a, a beautiful person, but I didn't feel like it was crafted, her identity was crafted in the same way Marilyn's was. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because she was, you know, she had dark hair and there was just something, you know, when you're that blonde bombshell, you know, it's just something that really appeals to the sort of, not to every man, but most men do find that. Speaking as a male, it's a stereotype that uh, if you have blonde hair, you're automatically more beautiful. <laughs> that's like saying a car's better when it's red. Yeah, that's true. Although uh, there is that old saying about why people get red cars. <laughs> so we'll jump into our first film here, which is the very famous, very well-known musical comedy of 1953, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Um, I'd always seen some of the famous showpieces in this film, but I hadn't seen it from start to finish. So just briefly, Marilyn plays Lorelei, who is a showgirl, and she decides to go for a trip to Paris with her friend Dorothy. Now, there's a subplot with her wanting to get married to this man whose father doesn't feel that she's good enough for her. So that sort of figures into the plot as well. Um, before her wedding with the rich Gus Esmond, so that's the gentleman that she's trying to get married to, her father-in-law sends a private eye detective to keep an eye on her, um, and he decides to keep an eye more on Lorelei, a.k.a. Marilyn's friend, play, who plays Dorothy, played by the wonderful Jane Russell. And lots of thrills and spills ensue with people getting, you know, trying to be charged with crimes and all sorts of things. And it all ends up really well with a nice big double wedding at the end and lots of nice musical numbers. So what was your feelings on this film, Matt? I liked the storyline and uh, the musical numbers. It's one of the. It's a uh, really nice to sort of dive into that kind of age of optimism that uh, is missing these days. Uh, but uh, some of the humour I thought were quite nice. I like that part when the little kids there. Yes, and, he was uh, very good. Yeah, uh, he's trying to um, uh, as, <laughs> in a ten-year-old way. Yeah. Uh, trick Marilyn. Yeah, that's right. You know, and she was hanging out the window and all this sort of stuff. But funnily enough, Howard Hawks directed this film and he had directed the original Scarface. 
bringing up baby, Red River, um, Rio Bravo. So he he was, now am I, I'm thinking of Howard Hughes, sorry. There's Howard Hughes with the guy with all the planes and all that stuff and then there's Howard Hawks. Yeah, so apparently they were saying um, in this one here, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, that he was perhaps not the right fit for this film to direct the film because he didn't actually direct a lot of the musical sequences I was reading. He left it to other people, some of the choreographers and things like that. Not surprising. And as a result, I don't even think he was there for Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which is the big showpiece that Marilyn sings from the movie. So this movie um, also starred, now let's see who... Let's just go down. I actually really liked... I've never really seen him before. Is it... Um, Malone, Elliot Reid. I actually really liked him. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in anything before. And this was one of the big roles that he did. Um, I'm just going through and having a look at his gentleman prefer and yeah. And then he sort of did sort of some Walt Disney films, um, in the sixties. He kind of gave off that vibe. Yeah. And, and probably more television. So he was more known as a television actor. So he even appeared on Seinfeld, they were saying, in the early years of that. So, geez. Everyone did. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm sure once the show got um, famous. So, and it was based on a, I'm wanting to say, it was based on a stage play. That's right. It was based on, yeah, it was based on the musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with the music by Jules Stein, who's one of the, you know, very famous sort of musical person. And Carol Channing. That's where I know, because Carol Channing, I remember Carol Channing, and she used to sing that song as well. So, I mean, look, it was a beautiful-looking film. All of these musical films from this era are. Uh, it's distributed by 20th Century Fox, the cinematography by Harry J. Wilde. You know, it's just a nice, fun film, and Marilyn's gorgeous in it. But you prefer Jane Russell, I heard. <laughs> oh, I just... Well, like I, like I said, it's just a... Uh, I think it's probably only a... Uh, one stereotype of um, uh, beauty that Marilyn was uh, allocated to, but there's different ideals. Yeah, and I actually thought her voice really suited the role when they were singing, although I did read, um, you know, when she sort of goes into the upper register, I think it's in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, when she's doing the no-no-no part, that was Marnie Nixon, who was very famous for overdubbing um, Deborah Kerr in The King and I, and mm. I mean, Marnie Nixon overdubbed for a lot of people because like, when she hit that sort of high note, I was like, oh, I don't know if Marilyn had that range, did she? And then when I read that it was Marnie Nixon, that makes sense, but I love Marnie Nixon, so. I wouldn't have put it together in my head because uh, thinking of The King and I, I can't remember any uh, tunes that require that much of a high note. Um, well, I just don't think Deborah Kerr was much of a singer. So uh, I think they just gave Marnie... Um, More school teacher. Yeah, and Marnie was one of the... Obviously, Julie Andrews didn't need any help singing, but I think Marnie was actually one of the nuns in, um, in The Sound of Music. But Marnie was just very famous for overdubbing for people who needed help singing. It's funny, I actually heard, heard on YouTube uh, this morning there was an older uh, television clip of Julie Andrews with the original Marie of One Trap and she was giving her a quick yodeling lesson. Yeah, actually, I've seen that clip come up but I've never actually I've never actually seen it so I look I thought the film was nice I I I'm just trying to compare I still my favorite Marilyn film will always and forever be some like it hot 
Well, that's because you like men who are into cross-dressing. Yeah, that's right. And also, I just love Joey e. Brown, as you know, as... Um, as uh, what's his name now? I'm just thinking. Oh, no, I've completely drawn a brand. But you know who Joey Brown is out there. You know which um, character he played. I oh, was Good Fielding. That's right. Um, okay, so if we we're going to go over to Marilyn's other film that we're going to discuss. So let me just pull up the notes on that one. So this is the Seven Year Itch, and this film is produces one of the most iconic moments. In film where Marilyn has that famous scene with her dress billowing over the subway which has been recreated in many other films including one of my favorites the woman in red with Kelly LeBlock Le Brock sorry doing that um, in front of Gene Wilde <laughs> in a very humorous way uh, uh, over the grill in the car park which was hilarious um, so this film was based on a play uh, a very successful play directed by Billy Wilder, of course. Can he do no wrong? Um, nope. So, and, yeah, God, his repertoire of films is just amazing. So in the midst of a summer heatwave, New Yorker Richard Sherman, played by Tom Yule, ships his wife, um, played by Evelyn Keyes, and their son off to Maine for a vacation, left alone in the heat. They kept stressing how hot Manhattan was at that time. It gets very humid yeah, it, in, in summer. Yeah, I've been there as well at that time. It does get humid. I and mean, we're Aussies and we're used to humid weather, but it does. Well, you do feel it definitely. In the t I think because there's so many people around, it's crowded. And, um, and New York, so particularly Manhattan, it's a concrete um, island. A concrete island, jungle, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the way that... Uh, they were actually talking about Western Sydney, some of the heat problems, and I think it's probably similar. Yeah, I think, yeah, Western Sydney's gotten out of control, but... Um, and so he's left alone to work back in Manhattan and he comes across a gorgeous blonde model played by none other than Marilyn and he becomes infatuated and starts fantasizing about her. And so this film sort of raises questions of infidelity. And as it says here, Richard dreams of his beautiful new neighbor, but will his fantasies about her become a reality? I think she was more interested in his air conditioning, wasn't she? <laughs> exactly. And... I think it's also one of those movies where you're sort of really glad in retrospect for the restrictions that are placed, how they could uh, portray the script. I mean, uh, the censors at the time outright forbid the display of adultery, literal yes. adultery, and the director, Billy, 20 years later, was saying, oh, how much easier it would have been for him in that time during the interview, like in the late 70s or something, when most of those restrictions had gone. But I actually think the film would have been a lot, uh, was a lot better the way it, mm, it, it is. It's, and in a way you could think of um, that whole film in microcosm embedding um, whether or not it's a good idea to have sex on screen uh, as a whole. And it, it's, like I seem to mention him every two weeks, but he provided so many quotes. And it's like Hitchcock said when discussing the value of um, being able to show sex on screen, and he does have a point of, like, once you've shown it anyway, what more is there to do? Yeah, that's right. You know, Matt's renowned for doing Hitchcock quotes, and I'm renowned for doing How Larry, Can We Connect Larry Hagman, references. Larry Hagman <laughs> into this film. And guys, guess what I have? Because the famous white dress that Marilyn wore uh, when she was standing over the grate and the, the, the air was blowing it all around, just that iconic image, that was designed by the costume director or costume designer, uh, Bill or William Travilla. And William Travilla at Dallas's heyday designed the costumes on Dallas. 
well, the big gowns that the ladies wore. So I don't know if he actually ever designed anything for Larry. Yeah, the shoulder padded gown. So that's the only connection that I can, I can see for this one. But nevertheless, you know. Look, I'm sure Laurie Hagman smiled at her at her picture now and then. <laughs> yes, that's that's very true. That that's very true because his mum sort of represented a different part of the, you know, female performing arts being sort of mostly on Broadway. But Tom Yule, who played the character Richard in the film, he actually did play the character on Broadway for quite a long time in the production of the Seven Year Itch. Mm -hmm. So it's nice that he got the chance. It's always nice when. The person who's renowned for playing the character on the stage gets a chance to play the character in the film. Yeah. What I'm thinking with Marilyn's portrayal on the screen, and that often uh, seems to speak to the image that was projected of her, is that it's not only that you have um, uh, Marilyn as someone who would have probably struggled to get much at attention and respect in life other than making it as a star in show business, but in so many of her roles, um, she's portrayed as someone in show business. Yeah, and that's true. Like, to an extent, it, uh, was a, it's a similar psychology that's been projected, that was projected for a long time in Hollywood, and to an extent even now, where sort of your hopes of happiness are pinned on a break into stardom. Uh, but, yeah. But uh, certainly, uh, for a lot of Marilyn Monroe's generation, it was kind of... Um, you dream of either finding that stardom or uh, marrying someone of wealth to have that life of uh, walking onto a boat with a big feather in your hair. Well, that's right. Well, that's her character in um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes definitely had that. Until at the end of the film where she gave his the, the potential father-in-law a speech about, you know, discussing things about, you know, being happy and what would you want if you know, the shoe was on the other sort of foot sort of thing and that swayed the dad over to it. So, yeah, I just, I don't know, which, which did you prefer one of the films over the other or they were just different things to you? I think uh, The Seven Year Rich I'd watch over and over again mm. uh, because I, I love the humour. And that's, again, if they had simply made it an outright sex manifestation mm. uh, first of all it would not be a much of a comedy that would basically be a recreation of every Italian opera yeah that's right <laughs> uh, minus the baritone uh, getting the troops in yeah but uh, uh, yeah that's what really helps her uh, to create the humor and the sort of the moral conniption that I'm guessing probably a lot of uh, people in a midlife crisis are going through yeah, that's right. Um, look, I love, I you know, I love musicals because I love having a good old sing-along, as you well know. And um, I did definitely have a sing-along. And it was nice to see, um, you know, I'd only ever seen pieces of Gentlemen Prefer Blonde, so it was sort of nice to actually sit down and watch the whole thing from start to finish. Uh, I did enjoy seeing how that iconic song that she sings, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, how that actually fit into the story and how they worked it in there. And there's been so many people who've, you know, um, ripped off that, you know, Madonna famously in her Material Girl. And even that movie Burlesque with uh, Christina Aguilera where they out... With it, it's all completely set around a club where they spend all their time miming to Marilyn Monroe type songs. Oh, really? I haven't seen Burlesque. It's 
not my cup of tea, and yeah. it's probably not yours either. No. But I think your mum would like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just, um, as I was saying to Matt, I, I rarely, I think the last modern film I sat, I went to see, I fell asleep in it, and I often fall asleep in them. I just don't really enjoy modern films. I actually don't, still don't mind a good English film, and I'm happy to try and give some Aussie films a go. But the stuff that comes out of mainstream Hollywood, I just, you know, some of the quirky Hollywood stuff, I'm actually more interested in like the B and C and D grade stuff that comes out like Sharknado and at least you get a laugh out of that, you know. I don't know, I think the last few years it's just been, uh, people have just been too scared. Yeah, it's just too much politically correct stuff. And, you know, there was a time and place for all that, but I think we just need to really kind of move on from all that stuff now. Well, it's kind of even a problem in Australian drama where I think a lot of the storylines can be uh, often a bit too uh, too careful and held back. And I'm guessing part of it is that sort of the biggest uh, blessing and curse in the Australian film industry is that uh, a great part of it is uh, funded through um, government uh, mm, bodies, and yeah. so that means that the people who uh, make the movies, uh, because of their financial basis, often are inclined to think like politicians. Yeah, that's true. That's that's very true. That's something you know. Um, I think Canada is probably in a similar position. I notice that a lot of um, Canadian government funds. A lot of Canadian productions, not the American productions made in Canada, but the local Canadian productions. And I think smaller countries like Ireland and stuff are the same. They just don't have the amount of people to generate enough sort of organic income off the movies. So, And you could probably also imagine a a particular generation of script writers and filmmakers have a very tight control of the industry for long periods and that uh, kind of greatly affect the tone of uh, filmmaking. Yeah, definitely. Um, So it was nice to take a visit with Marilyn. I'm sure we'll take a few more visits with her. There's still some other great films. I'm actually, is it alright if I keep the box set that you lent me for a while? Fine with me, there's a lot of content to go through. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I just, I was actually looking at it and I thought I wouldn't actually mind watching all of these films and diving a bit deeper into her repertoire. So that that's us. That's our visit with Marilyn this week. It was. It's always good to see her. Um, I, my mum's a big fan of classic movies. Of course, Elizabeth Taylor's her idol, but she also loves Marilyn. Loved Marilyn. I was telling Matt um, uh, before we started recording that my mum was like twelve, uh, just turning twelve when Marilyn died. And um, she said she ran it. I don't know where she heard it, but she ran into the classroom and said, oh, my God, Marilyn Monroe's died. And they're like, yeah, right. And then they all went home and found out that it was true. These days, if you you go into a classroom like that and everybody would have their phones with their Twitter feed and be like, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, that's that's right. But she said that's one of a memory from her childhood that always stands out when she found out that Marilyn Monroe had passed away. Well, that's about around the age when uh, you will take on a... a memory of a major media event like when I was nine that's when 9-11 happened mm. so and that's kind of a when you form a big uh, imp- impression of uh, how the world is functioning depending on what major events are happening at the time and yeah that's definitely true so yeah I mean definitely her her death her life and death you know it was a very you know it was filled with the highest of highs but the lowest of lows and it's just a shame that she wasn't living at a time where she could have gotten a probably a bit more help for her emotional stability but there's no doubt I think Joe and uh, Arthur Miller did love her they seemed I mean you saw Joe when he had her funeral and stuff and he was genuinely quite broken up about it 
well, I don't think many people go into a marriage uh, from the beginning without um, some sort of affection or um, uh, hope for the positive future. Mm. Um, but yeah, it just uh, doesn't always work out. And it, it fascinates me how uh, in places like Hollywood, uh, relationships can evaporate so quickly. Uh, yeah, I think she, she miscarried a few times and that was a very troubling and sad thing for her because she wanted to be a mother and... Yeah, so she just, she did go through, it sounded like she had a bit of a, you know, she had some amazing things in her life, but there was always that shadow following her around. So, you know, it's just a tragedy. Unfortunately, she couldn't get through that and she couldn't finish the last film that the that she was trying to make, Something's Got to Give, which they, you know, it's amazing watching that footage of her in that film because she was, she'd actually lost a bit of weight and she was really, you know, she was 36, which then is kind of a bit oldish, but now it's not. But Well, Jane Russell, who appeared alongside uh, uh, Marilyn in uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes when she was in older age, a uh, journalist uh, asked her what was probably a naive question of uh, why did she stop making pictures, and she responded to him, because I got older than 30, and because yeah. back then, unless you were wanting to go uh, expand into character actors, it was like being an Olympic athlete. You were kind of... Uh, it was kind of you were young and beautiful or you weren't in Hollywood. Yeah, I think Catherine Hepburn and a few others, they managed to because they went into more character-based mm -hmm. sort of roles, but it was their roles were sort of few and far between, really, weren't they? Exactly, and uh, like uh, for some people uh, that that's fine, but also uh, when you've uh, been doing a particular uh, trade for over 10 years, I suppose you decide then if you want to stick with it or not. Mm, yeah, that's true. Uh, so we're going to wrap up now, but we will introduce what we are planning to do on our next one. We wanted to take another visit with Jimmy Stewart because we both love Jimmy Stewart. We have done a few of his films before. We've done a couple of ones connected with him before. But these are just two that we had real, especially the second one. I had always wanted to see this. I remember watching it on a Saturday afternoon many years ago and I never got to finish it. So I said, you know what, Matt, let's... Let's do these two just because they're two very well-known films and they are vehicles for James. So we're going to do Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 1939, and we're going to do Harvey, uh, 1950. And I've always, Harvey's the one that I really want to take another look at because it just looks so interesting. And that could be, Matt and I sort of have an involvement with the local theatre company. I yeah. think Matt should suggest to the play committee to to do Harvey. Well, I'm sure there'd be plenty of volunteers for the bunny role. Yeah. They're, they're... Unless, unless they do it for the summer season, then it yeah. might be a bit harder to get uh, volunteers. Yeah, that's right. So um, we're going to come to you and we're going to have a nice visit with James Stewart, the great Jimmy Stewart, next time we see you. But in the meantime, as you well know, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. See you and good night. <laughs>